Hi, I'm Super Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. If you've not listened, where have you been? Come on, get involved. We talk about all things energy, sustainability, and of course, net zero. We're here to talk about business and what it can do to make the planet better. We're here to talk about science. We're here to talk about you. So if you'd like to be involved, then do drop us a line. Listen in, tell your friends, tell your business partners, subscribe. And for all your news around net zero, follow us on futurenetzero.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hi, on this week's episode, Air. Oh, yes. And I'm not talking about the album from 2002. I'm talking about the air we breathe. How clean is it? How clean should it be? It's an element of the whole net zero transition that's actually quite, well, it's quite fundamental. It's part of what the SDGs are, the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, giving us cleaner air to breathe is one of the most important things. But have we done enough to do so? You know, obviously, if you live in London, ULEZ has come in, the dreaded ULEZ, the hated ULEZ by many people. Uh, there are other schemes in other parts of the UK and also around the world looking at trying to reduce air pollution. The recent Cricket World Cup was held in India and one of the big issues there was the smog. Same in Beijing, if you remember, or Brazil. Um, globally, air pollution is one of those things that kind of sits in a funny place. Is it health or is it kind of really the responsibility of the energy sector to clean up their act? Is it about traffic emissions? Well, we're going to explore all of that and what should be done with Imogen Martineau from the Clean Air Fund this week. Imogen, hello. Hello, great to be here. What is the Clean Air Fund? So the Clean Air Fund is a global philanthropy that was set up in 2019 to accelerate action on air pollution worldwide. But we also work in a number of specific geographies, um, which other people call countries. Yeah. Uh, so those include uh, the UK, which um, I'm head of, and also India, Bulgaria, Poland, Ghana, we do quite a lot of work um, with the EU and we are soon opening an office in South Africa. But essentially, we were established to crowd more funding into the air pollution space, because as you right. mentioned, it was slightly falling between the stools yeah. of climate change and health. And there was a kind of recognition by a group of philanthropists that uh, air pollution was really impacting the health of all people, you know, particularly people living in urban areas, particularly in the global south and particularly vulnerable people, so children and the elderly. So action on air pollution delivers benefits to climate, but also to health. So it's a win-win. What is the fund doing? So what do you fund? That's a very good question. So one of the challenges that we face on air pollution is quite low levels of public awareness. There are some areas where public awareness is really high and air pollution is very visible. So in some Indian cities and some cities in China, you know, it's something that everyone is talking about because they experience. Of course, you can see it. Yeah. When I go and visit my relatives in Calcutta, you can taste it in the air. Exactly. And that's what we had in the UK with the, the smog, which brought about the kind of first Clean Air Act. But there's also air pollution that isn't visible. And so we're a lot of the work that we do is about raising awareness of the health impacts of air pollution in order to build public demand for politicians really to take action on the issue. 
So a lot of our work is around awareness raising, demand raising, working with campaigners and community groups to really kind of keep air pollution on the agenda as an issue that needs to be tackled. And the great thing yep. about air pollution is there are solutions. It's it's relatively easy to fix. It just needs the political will. Do you find there's any science? So obviously people may have seen, if you drive around, you look carefully, you can see these funny little stations that are dotted around roads and, and they're little kind of monitoring stations for pollution. Do you fund any of that stuff or is it all just about kind of uh, raising awareness what you do we do do some um, monitoring right. some projects to do with monitoring we don't fund kind of large scale academic research right. um, because the, the budgets involved are just beyond us um, but we have done some schemes we did a project in London called Breathe London where we put up low cost sensors to see whether we could track um, use low cost sensors really to kind of mirror and replicate the data that was being gathered from the government's uh, official monitors. And that allowed us to gather data from areas where information wasn't currently being sourced. So then we could just get insights into kind of particular hotspots where air pollution is really bad, and that can inform and drive policy solutions. It's funny, I'm quite old. So when I was growing up, pollution was the word right? There wasn't any climate change. People talked about pollution. And pollution was very tangible. You could see it, you know, you chuck some crap into a river, fish die, you can see that, you know, factories produce smoke and smog, people understand that. Do you think that the whole issue of why something like your organisation needs to exist is because the whole narrative has changed, particularly over the last 10 years to this kind of climate change and this amorphous thing of, you know, one and a half degrees and things like that, which most humans find very difficult to contemplate the difference between one and a half and two degrees. And most humans find it very difficult to contemplate a ton of CO2, whereas they can see a polluted river, they can see, you know, smog. Why do you think the whole, you know, issue led to this, your, your group being funded? Because clearly, um, we've known about this for years, and you said the solution is pretty simple, but kind of not really happened has it i think you're absolutely spot on on your analysis and essentially we're you know very very highly evolved animals and we respond to our senses so if if this kind of ceiling fell in right now you know in, in your studio or, or my home we would rush out of the the spirit sphere of danger you know a lot about the builder who put our ceiling together exactly. you're, you're not bad <laughs> pretty fast and so we are basically evolved to respond to things yeah. that we experience with our senses. And as you say, for a lot of people, climate change, I mean, I think it's changing fast because I think people are much more conscious of seeing and feeling and experiencing climate change and its impacts. Um, but I think for a long time, it had been a kind of a cognitive intellectual concept yes. shown in graphs yeah. and charts and reports. I think one of the benefits of talking about air pollution is that um, it allows the conversation to focus on your local area, on health, on how um, emissions of greenhouse gases can, whether, whether they're from vehicles or from houses or from local industry, how they're impacting your local community. So it really brings it home. It really localizes it and it allows people to really understand how it's impacting them and their communities now. But the other thing that um, we're seeing in talking about air pollution is that the, the ways of tackling air pollution also deliver significant benefits to your local community. So we've got a campaign running called Refresh Britain, which is very much focused on 
if you deliver these policies, which run improving streets, improving homes, uh, improving your, your local towns, they deliver benefits to the community in terms of better public transport, more reliable public transport, greener parks, better space, access to spaces. And so those benefits, the kind of win-wins, are the things that people really appreciate and want to see. So air pollution allows us to change the conversation a bit from this kind of climate change, which I think can often feel so huge and yep. sometimes it's happening more over there than over yep. here yeah um, and it allows us to really localize some of the issues and bring them home to people quite literally i want to talk about globally as well because obviously your organization looks around the world but let's start stick to the uk for now ULES, right ultra low emission zone very very controversial and quite hated by a lot of people who live in outer london now there's a, a current spat going on about an advert that's, you know, talked about the effect of the low emissions zone, LES, initially, um, and how uh, it sort of helped cut uh, the number uh, and levels of pollution in central London. The problem, I think, for most people is they don't see that punishing them is the way to resolve this. And they don't see the fairness where someone owns a 40-year-old Rolls-Royce 3.2-litre diesel engine, and yet if you own a 10-year-old diesel Golf, you're paying, but they are not. Can you see why a lot of people have not just continued to, to dislike you, Les, but actually question its significance in reducing air pollution? Because actually, if you want to do that, you really should say, right, ban these cars or put certain restrictions on all exhausts, and that will clean things up. You're basically using it as a money-making scheme, many people say. I mean, I'm, I can't speak for the, the mayor's office and that's really not my... No, my I get goal. it. But your organisation backs something like you, Les. You think it's a good idea, don't you? We think that low emission zones have a really important part to play in reducing levels of nitrogen dioxide. And they have been proven to be the fastest way of bringing down concentrations of nitrogen dioxide, which were at illegal levels um, in large parts of the UK. So the British government was mandated to really take drastic action on combating those concentration levels. The ULES scheme itself has, it's got its supporters, it's got its opponents. I totally understand the challenges. I think efforts have been made to support people with the transition to a lower emission transport system. So the scrappage scheme, um, improvements in public transport. But I, I accept that for individuals, certain individuals, yes. Um, it is, you know, having a significant impact. And during a cost of living crisis, that is going to be experienced more than ever. And that's the hard thing, isn't it? Because I, I don't think anyone would disagree, let's cut pollution. But it's the instruments that, you know, you talk about policy, you know, awareness and driving policy that makes the difference. It's very tricky for politicians to get that right. Yeah, and I think that's what I think it's a really important point also about how policies are designed and introduced. Mm. So the Refresh Britain campaign that I referenced earlier, we've developed a suite of policies that are based on in-depth audience insights. So we've talked to focus groups up and down the country to understand their concerns, their their kind of attitudes to air pollution and the solutions that they'd like to see. And a lot of it is about what, as I was mentioning earlier, about the kind of improvements in their local community that also deliver improvements in air quality. So I think what people struggle with is where policies have 
and are mandated and have yes. an impact on the individual. And I think those are always going to be more challenging policies to introduce. I think it'll be interesting to see, I mean, we don't have data yet on the ULES expansion and its uh, impact on air pollution. I think that will be interesting to see. And I think also with a lot of policies, you do see a kind of a, a lot of concern before policies are introduced. I think there was a lot of misinformation about the number of people that were going to be affected by the ULES scheme. And so it, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, over the coming year, um, how public attitudes to that change and what the impact is on air pollution. And obviously we've got a mayoral election coming back and that will be the real... I think that'll be a litmus test. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is for this, and, and, you know, you you talk about the whole idea of making sure, generally, the poorer are more disproportionately affected by things like air pollution because they live in areas that are generally more urban. They live in areas where there are big roads with cars and buses and diesel and all of that and yet also with ULES that the you know they, they generally drive the poorer you know older cars that that suffer I'll park the ULES thing for now good pun there parking it but in terms of that with people who are more at the sharp end of this you know tragically we had the little girl who who died a couple of years ago and that was all you know related to air pollution it doesn't matter what we seem to do. You know, we've had a congestion charge for 20 years. Still, levels of pollution in big cities like London, Birmingham, you go to Manchester, are really, really high. So are we missing a trick in terms of getting things such as public transport cleaner or freight cleaner before we look at the, the, the cars? What, what, do, what do you guys look at in terms of you know, you say it can be done. You said earlier on, oh, it's quite an easy thing to do. Well, what should we be doing? Because it's still not working. I mean, there have been significant improvements in air quality over the last, um, you know, several decades. So we have seen a reduction in levels of particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide. They're still higher than they ought to be. They're higher yep. than the World Health Organization would um, would recommend that they were, but we have seen improvements. The challenge is that those improvements are kind of now plateauing. So that's why we're very keen to kind of keep the pressure on and make sure that we see a continuation of that overall trend. But you're absolutely right that um, air pollution sort of ties in with a lot of other um, societal inequalities and contributes to those growing health inequalities. And that's something that we're very, very conscious in the way that we look at policy design and implementation. People say EVs, they're the panacea. They're not really, because there's lots of pollution that comes up from their tires, but they're definitely far more visible because nothing's coming out and the crap's coming out of the exhaust. You can see it. Where do you sit on the, the transport transition? As an organisation, I think EVs have a part to play. As you yeah. say, they do also contribute to air pollution through particulate matter. So through brake and tyre wear, they actually contribute to PM two point five. But as you say, they reduce emissions of nitrogen dioxide. I think in terms of a sort of a good solution for transport, what we need is a better public transport system that is more right. reliable, yeah. that is cleaner, that is more efficient. So a lot of the reason that we're seeing people getting into their cars, particularly in the last few years, is because public transport isn't reliable. There are a lot of people who are forced into their cars because they don't have another option. Very true. And so what we'd like to see is a better 
solution for those people so that they don't have to get in their cars, they don't have to sit in traffic jams, and they don't have to find expensive parking spaces, and they don't have to be polluting the, the air around their towns and cities. Instead, they can hop on a bus or a tube or or a tram and get to work or wherever they're going in a way that's kind of clean, reliable, and they know when they're going to get there. I think that's absolutely crucial. And that's been a real challenge in the last years. Is this really just a problem of cities? Because people would say, well, you know, if you go outside London, public transport's pretty poor. Okay. But then again, the, the populations are, are less. So if you go out into a, a kind of village on the outskirts of Cambridgeshire, people will be using their cars, definitely, because that's the only way they can get around, because there is no infrastructure. But then the, the pollution is, is a lot less because there's less cars. So where do you sit on this? Because some would say, well, actually, just tackle the cities, hence ULES here and perhaps in Birmingham and other places and you know all the big sort of conurbations. But there is pollution that affects everyone in this country. There is pollution that affects everyone. And I mean, it's worse in cities because you have more transport, yeah. more business, you yeah. have and a high density of population. But there are rural areas that suffer significant um, levels of air pollution, where particularly might, where they're in rural areas which might have a, an incineration unit, for example, or specific industrial kind of industrial process yeah yeah exactly that impact the local community so it's not just an urban issue but it is more pinpointed in the rural communities but in terms of the um access to public transport i mean ideally you would have good public transport you know where wherever you are in the country and i think there's a, a big role for tech also in this of finding better solutions bringing people together um, whether that's through car sharing or on-demand buses. But there there are solutions out there. It's about providing the funding to ensure that those are made available and accessible to everyone. You've been going since 2019. What do you think you've achieved? Gosh, um, in the UK or worldwide? Oh, let's start with the UK for now. In the UK, I think we've done a lot to support organisations across the health and environmental movement to really make clear the need for stronger action on air pollution. So there was a new Environment Act that was brought into place by the government, and we campaigned hard for the target for particulate matter. And sorry, this is really geeky. No, it's important. Yeah. We um, achieved that that target is now set at 10 micrograms per cubic metre. We lobbied for it to be achieved by 2030 and the government has set a target of it to be achieved by 2040, which we were disappointed with because we provided the evidence that that target can be achieved by 2030. There, there really is no reason why it can't and be. And how do you see it being achieved? Are you talking about electrification or are you talking about trying to clean up uh, the heat that we have in our buildings? How, how do you see that target being achieved? Well, what was interesting about the report that we commissioned from Imperial College is it shows that that target, the WHO 10 target, could be achieved by 2030 with existing government policies. Right. So we're actually asking the government to commit to achieving a target which the data suggests is already going to be achieved across 99% of the country by 2030. And that will be achieved through things like the phase out of ICE vehicles. This research was done before, before the, the, the yeah the slight change, but yeah. change. And changes in um, emissions from industry. So, uh, so a lot of it is changes that as part of the kind of net zero work we're already seeing. But that's why 
we really want to keep the pressure up to make sure that those net zero transitions also really take account of air pollution as well, because there's a, a risk that some policies designed to deliver net zero could actually inadvertently contribute no, to true. air pollution. So we just need to make sure that the two are considered together. Um, but we've we've made really good progress also in seeing the introduction of clean air zones where they have been introduced really well and effectively. So Birmingham City Council, Bradford, they've introduced clean air zones that have been really well done, well communicated, and there's been a dramatic reduction in air pollution as a result of those schemes. So we're seeing some really good measures. We're also seeing an increase in public awareness um, as a result of a lot more media coverage of the issue. Um, is storyline going out on Coronation Street that was set up by Asthma Along UK. So we're just seeing more public discourse about it. And also the amazing campaigning done by Rosamond Adukisi Deborah, um, the mother of Ella, who you mentioned earlier. Yes. And she does amazing work to really make sure that um, the issue is kind of front and centre of the mind of minds of politicians in London, the UK and worldwide. Before we go, let's talk about your worldwide action. I started by talking about India, which is where my family's from, and the smog that's there. Brazil, India, China, Russia, you know, Philippines, doesn't matter where you go, uh, Maldives. You can see the pollution in these places. Is what you're doing, and I hate to put this to you, but is it really kind of something for modern Western society that's always already a lot cleaner than these places? Because it seems to me that you, you're facing an enormous challenge in these areas and very little seems to have progressed. I mean, I agree. It is a, a, a real challenge. And I agree it is not for Western society or governments to tell other parts of the world how to manage. I think that some of the work that we do is about working with the charitable sector and governments in those countries to work together to look at really actually what I was saying earlier about that net zero piece as the world decarbonizes yeah. and it's something that all governments around the world are looking to do. Yes. How can you make sure that that transition to a low carbon future, a zero carbon future, delivers health improvements at the same time? And so it's about engaging with health ministers at the same time as you're engaging with environment and climate change ministers and making sure that you deliver, you achieve sort of bang for buck. It's just bringing together, it's a bit of sort of joined up thinking. But how that's done is going to be different in every geography. There isn't a kind of one size fits all. And we've very much found that with all the work that we've done is that there isn't a kind of silver bullet to the issue of air pollution. Different countries uh, have different sources of air pollution, yeah. um, generally fossil fuels the kind of main source so there is a kind of you know one one major source but how you tackle that is going to be done differently in different um geographies are you doing things are you doing campaigns in places like you said i think ghana uh in yes. poland yeah India, working about... very much with different stakeholder groups in those areas and working within the kind of after what is possible in different geographies. What's the public, sorry to interrupt, but what's the public perception there? Because obviously we've got a whole history of environmentalism in this country and people are, you know, God, I don't want this, whatever. What's been the thing? Because I think, you know, again, I can only speak from family. People just sort of accept this is always the way it's been. Right? If you live in Delhi, you've accepted that, you know, it's been like this for 30 years. So they kind of just go, well, get on with it, put a mask on. Uh, same in Beijing. Do you see anything that's showing you the public want to say, hang on a second, I've had enough? 
Yeah, we've done some polling in quite a few of the countries where we work, and there are very high levels of public concern. It's translating that into action yeah. um, that is the, the challenge and making sure that the policy solutions are acceptable to the populations that are experiencing the worst effects of air pollution. So I do think there is a desire to see change. I think it's just hard for an individual to see where that change comes from. But I think if we can work, I mean, it's it's about, it's not us, the Clean Air Fund, it's about the organisations that we work with, coming up with the kind of appropriate policy solutions and rolling them out and showing that they can work and then scaling them up with support maybe from government. But there is also, one of the things that we've done quite a bit of work on in India as well as in the UK is also looking at the economic costs of air pollution yes. and they cost, cost the economy a lot in terms of lost productivity mm. of workers being off work because they are ill or their loved ones are ill and they're taking care of them or in worst cases they've died early and the economic cost in the UK is 1.6 billion pounds per wow. year wow. of us not having air quality in line with the WHO guidelines and um, in India, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it was a huge figure. I bet. So there is an incentive for governments to invest now, a small amount now, to deliver improvements in air quality, which will both increase productivity, but also reduce the health burden on health services. So there is a kind of, a, there's a really strong rationale from the perspective of economics, from the health perspective, and also from just the improvement in the local area. And so a lot of our work is just designed to ensure that there's that incentive for politicians to take the action that's needed. What are your hopes for the, the short term? What, what are your plans? Is it more campaigns? Do you start to see perhaps these low emission zones being more common around not just this country, but what are you wanting to do? If I give you a, I'll give you an unlimited pot right now of cash. There you go from my wallet. Off you oh, go, thank Imogen. You. There you go. Don't don't That's go. Don't, really kind of you. don't go spending it all in IKEA for your new furniture. But <laughs> if you're going to go and do it, what what are you going to see? What do you want to see in the next couple of years? So in the UK, I'd like to see much more ambitious targets aligned to the World Health Organization. So policy. You want to see policy changes that are. Yeah, stricter. I'd like to see policy changes, and I'd like to see more funding for local authorities and local governments to develop solutions to air pollution in their areas. And worldwide, again, yeah. a kind of bigger, stronger ambition in integrating improvements in air quality along with net zero plans based on the World Health Organization guidelines and a real race for leadership on improving air quality. And so air quality being more a bigger part of the conversations at things like the COP climate negotiations, um, which are taking place next month. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what well, it's one of those things where, as I said right at the beginning, it is a very tangible thing, you know, and it's one of those things perhaps we've taken a lot for granted. It's only when you go and see other parts of the world you realise how lucky we are. Imogen, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. If people want to find out a bit more or get involved in any campaigns, is there any way of doing that? They can go to the website, which is cleanairfund.com. Brilliant. OK. Well, Imogen, thanks for that. If you would like to know more, go to the website, have a look. What's your thoughts on these clean air zones? Let me know. You can subscribe to the email. You can let us know on social media. My thanks, Imogen, for joining us on this week's podcast. See you soon and make sure you subscribe. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. 
And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.